0: Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Hosea. We have ushers coming forward right now with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you forgot one, didn't bring one, um, grab a copy of God's Word. You want to have it opened up to Hosea as we walk through chapters 2 and 3 this morning. But go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word. Go to Hosea. It's right after Daniel. It's, It's kind of in the middle there. You hit all the major prophets and keep moving to the right and you will hit Hosea, the first of the smaller books, what we call the Minor Prophets. I also noticed this morning that like Harvest Kids was super backed up as they're checking people in. I guess after last Sunday, are like, man, my kid's not going to be in a church service where the pastor uses the word horse so much. So I'm putting them into Harvest Kids. Well, <laughs> chapter two and three are pretty rough. So just be prepared, all right? <clears throat> but listen, listen, as you, as you turn to Hosea chapter two this morning, maybe you, you have kids and, or you had kids a while ago. And as you think about your kids, here's something I notice about kids. Kids have this bottomless pit of their heart's desire for your love and attention. Have you noticed that? They just have this bottomless pit of, of needing, of wanting, of, of looking for your love and your attention. No matter how much love you pour out, they'll absorb it all. Like, okay, that's great. Can I get some more? Right? Maybe your kids are like mine and you hear this often around your home. Hey, dad, watch this. Hey, dad, can you see this? Hey, dad, can you watch as I do this? You guys have that in your house, right? And just looking for what? Looking for you to notice, looking for your approval, looking for your love. They crave it. And we can kind of shake our heads and go, oh, silly kids. And yet, yet from a biblical point of view, when, when we look at, at our own lives, aren't we really just the same as our kids? where we crave approval and love. Now, here's the thing. When you get older, you get better at hiding it, right? So you're not so much, hey, look at me. Now, usually with iPhones, we're doing that more often now, right? Hey, check this out, right? Hey, hold my beer. And then somebody gets hurt, right? That's typically what happens when you get the cameras out, right? But aren't we the same? We just want to have that kind of love or approval. We demand a love from each other that we just can't give. We can't give each other a a love of of quality and purity that we need. We can't give each other a love in the quantity that we need. We we can't get that kind of love from our spouse. We can't get that kind of love from our kids. We can't get that kind of love from our friends or, or from our church. Now, why is that? Why is there this insatiable need that we just can't from each other horizontally can't get this love and approval? Well, one author says it this way. The love that created the world is the furnace in which you were forged. It was the consuming fire, the eternal and infinite fire of the love of God. The Bible says that's where you were created. And and because you were created in that kind of fire, there, there's no other kind of love, no other kind of fire that can warm your heart. It's God's infinite love, it's God's eternal love that we need. It's it's the kind of love that if we don't put our camp next to that campfire, we grow cold. When we seek it elsewhere, we're lost. We're going to see this morning as we unpack chapter 2 and 3 of Hosea, we're going to see God's love on display. If you missed last Sunday, we're going to see God's love on display as he loves us who are unfaithful. As God loves the wayward we're jumping into the second part of this six-part series in Hosea. This this minor prophet called Hosea, who is called to, to live out this, this living parable of what God's love looks like. This, this living parable of God's grace, where Hosea representing God marries Gomer representing us. Gomer, an unfaithful wife. Gomer, who who takes the good gifts she gets from her faithful husband, but then goes and pursues other lovers. Eventually living her life as a prostitute. And Gomer's story, that's our story. And maybe last week as we began to unpack it, maybe it was the first time ever you've ever read or studied the book of Hosea. I mean, I love hearing so many people this week just, just texting or calling or, or messaging saying, man, I'm digging into this book and I got these commentaries, these study guides and, and man, this is such good stuff here and, and digging deeper. Here's my hope as we do that together, that we would see the gospel of Jesus Christ differently than we've ever seen it before. That be a, it'd be sung to a different tune that would kind of catch us in a, in a way like, man, I've never heard it said that way before. My hope is that as you read through the book of Hosea on your own, as we unpack it on Sunday mornings, that we would begin to not just understand the message from an intellectual place, but that we would feel this message. That you would feel it all week long. My hope for us in this study we're calling Relentless, that you would see and understand how God relentlessly pursues you. He gives grace and love to a sinful people. Why? Because he is God. I mean, this book essentially isn't about Hosea. It's not about Gomer. It's not about Israel. It's not about you and me. This book here, this book we're reading of Hosea, it's about God, a gracious, loving, righteously jealous, redeeming God who who lovingly pursues people in their rebellion. And so, so while as you read through the book of Hosea, you begin to see clearly where you could say, I am Gomer, my hope is this, that even more loudly, even more clearly, you'd be able to say, God is my deliverer. So let, let me catch us up quickly. Here, here's Hosea. It's, it's a prophetic book. So it means it's, it's a, a message delivered by God through a prophet to his people. It's being delivered to the nation of Israel, which at this time has been split into Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And and Hosea is speaking to Israel primarily, called Ephraim throughout this book. So when you see the name Ephraim, that, that means Israel. And it's during this time of of economic prosperity. Things are going really great economically for Israel, but there's some geopolitical struggle going on because Assyria is beginning to grow stronger to their east and, and the capital city of Nineveh of Assyria, it's growing bigger and stronger by the day. And eventually we know that God would use Assyria in 722 BC as the means of discipline of Israel, as a stern warning to Judah and Israel would, would be laid waste by Assyria, would be, would be scattered as exiles. And God wants to so lovingly warn them, Hey, hey, you might be prosperous, things might look good on the outside, but you're rotting on the inside as you abandon me, as you pursue other loves. And to make the warning hit home, he uses his prophet Hosea as this object lesson and says, Hosea, go marry Gomer, who's going to be unfaithful to you. The image of this marriage, of of Hosea loving this woman who goes off into prostitution and he keeps wooing her back and loving her anyway, it's supposed to make us kind of wince a little bit as we read it. It's supposed to be a bit awkward. Why? Because we we want to be able to feel the, the unbelievably relentless grace of God. Is to help us understand what grace really looks like of who our God really is. And, and last week we set the scene through chapter one, and, and now we're going to see in chapters two and three, God pursuing His people and, and this pursuit of costly grace. And maybe that's where you are this morning, that, that, that you would recognize as we go through these couple of chapters, that, that all the circumstances that brings you out, even on a Sunday morning like this, it's not just random but that God might be pursuing you today. And this morning can be the morning where you respond to this amazing, loving God. In fact, with your Bibles open, look at verse one of chapter two. You begin to see this grace displayed right away. It says this, Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received Mercy. Remember last week it ended off with, with Hosea's kids being called, you have no mercy, you're not my people. And now in verse one, it says, no, you are my people. You, you have received mercy. Now Remember this starting point as we jump into chapter two, because we're about to see God's righteous anger on display towards sin, but, but understand the place that it comes from, God's holiness and his anger out of this context. Do you hear God's heart? as he's dealing with an unfaithful spouse, that you see the pain and the hurt coming from this place of love. If if you're a parent and you've had a a child who's gone wayward, you understand this tension where you have so much love for your kid and yet there's also this this anger you have at the choices they're making. And and in this tension, the, the anger actually comes out of the deep love you have. It's in this place that God pursues. Look at verse two. Hosea is now out of the picture. Hosea is gone, full on, disappeared. And so Hosea now talking to the kids saying, plead with your mother, plead. Now in in Hebrew, if you repeat a word, it's like bold, underlined explanation. He's saying, Plead plead with your mother, plead for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. God's pursuing even as she's unfaithful. And then God begins to warn. Look at verse three. Warn her, plead with her, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. Some harsh words here. What's Gomer's response? Look at verse five. So Gomer's left and here's what she's saying. For, her, for their mother has played the whore. Conce- she who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, here's what she's saying as she's doing this. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Here's Gomer's heart. Listen, listen, this is our heart on display here. We're about to look at what God's pursuit is, but, but see right away here what, what Gomer's pursuit is, what our pursuit is. Gomer is not being passive here. She's going after other gods. She's pursuing for a purpose, saying, I'm doing this because I get these things when I do this. A church word for this, a biblical word for this, we call it idolatry. Where you're looking for your hope, your provision, your identity, in something or someone other than God. Now, now to really understand what's going on here, you you have to understand what Israel is actually pursuing. The false God they're looking for in this time is a God called Baal. Baal. He he was a central part of Canaanite worship and and their whole culture, along with another God called called Asherah. So they have Baal and Asherah, and and both of them are are connected with the fertility of the earth, with prosperity. And if you're in an agrarian culture where where crops are your livelihood, man, these gods would be important to you. Baal was the male god. He was in charge of storms and rain. Asherah was the female god. She was in charge of, of agriculture. And the Canaanites believed that the fertility of the land, of the earth, was directly related to the fertility of Baal and Asherah. And so they worshiped Baal. Yeah, they gave offerings, but what they also did was they involved themselves in sexual immorality. There were temple prostitutes. And and you would worship this way. You would worship by living out what you hoped that your gods would do. And so you would go to the temple and you would visit the prostitutes there. And and I don't want to be graphic, but you go there saying, this is what I hope for, that Baal, you would be fertile like I am right now. That Ashereth, you would be fertile like I am right now. They believe that by visiting the temple in this way, by worshiping in this way, that that your crops, your life would be successful as you acted this out. Now listen, even today, even today, the enemy uses the same deadly combination of, hey, what do you want? What do you think that you want? Believe that you need. And what's the emotional, physical payoff you can get from it? When you, when you say something you know is wrong, when you act out in a way that you know is wrong and, and it comes from an idolatrous heart, that, that word or that action came from a, a something that you wanted. Something deep in your soul. And you thought, if I say this, if I act in this way, I'll get this. We may not say it that clearly, but our, our actions are showing that. That's why I say all the time that when you sin, look under the sin, what's driving the sin. When you look at your actions and your words, we need to be asking, man, what in the world am I after? What do I want? Sure, we don't worship Baal today, but our idolatry is just the same. We we pursue things because of what we hope we get in the pursuit that they'll give us what we want. Give me good feelings. Give, give me a better self-image. Give me a, a sense of power. Give me whatever it is or whoever it is your heart craves. But the, the problem is that these idols we pursue, they don't stay under our control. Eventually, because we're worshiping them, they become our gods and they begin to control us and we're enslaved by these idols. And we pursue what our heart craves but God's also pursuing us. He's pursuing us whose wants are broken. Maybe part of the reason God has you here today is so that he can pull back the curtain a little bit so you can begin to see your idols more clearly. And so as we pursue sin, as we pursue idolatry, what's God doing? God in his love is actually pursuing us. And so this morning, for the rest of the morning, we've got here, I want us to unpack the ways that God pursues. In I look at verse six, he says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it's better for me then, than the now. Here's the first way God, God's love pursues. God pursues me with a disciplining love. God pursues with a disciplining love. His, his first way of going after Israel is like, I'm gonna make your idolatry hard. I'm gonna make it difficult. And, and he says, I'm gonna put a wall up. I'm gonna put thorns around. It's, it's basically just picture a wall with barbed wire fence. I'm going to make it difficult for you to find joy in your soul as you pursue these idols. Now, Gomer went after them. Remember, she said, I'm going to these because they give me my, my wool, my flax, my water, my, my food. They, they give me what I want. But look at verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Can you picture it? Here's Gomer living in sin, maybe at somebody else's home now living with them. And, and, and Hosea hears that, that the new person she's with isn't taking care of her. And what's Hosea do? He goes to the door and knocks on the door. He says, I understand that, that Gomer's in trouble. I'd, I'd like you to take care of her with this. And Gomer thought, it's my new lover giving me this. God pours out blessings, and what do we do? We take those blessings, and we begin to worship the blessing instead of the one who gave it to us. We begin to lift them up as idols. I mean, they, it wouldn't take us long to be able to start think through, man. What, what would those idols be in my life? You know, as we pursue, man, I, I need a good image. I need to look a certain way, or or we pursue work as an idol. I, I need to be productive and successful if I'm going to feel good about who I am, or or we look to achievement. I need to be recognized or, or my stuff. I, I need to have a certain level of, of possessions or, or status or, or we look to people. I need this person in my life and this person here had better give me everything I need and want, my love, my attention. We can look to family as idols, whether to our kids or to our parents. Now here's the thing with idols no one would ever just clearly state right out, just say, my life only has meaning, only has worth, only has identity if I have these things. We wouldn't say that. But the life of worship we live reveals it. And, and in those idols, man, I just did a really quick run. I, I may have missed the one that you wrestle with, the thing that grabs your heart's attention. But in these idols, even in those, what's it look like to look beneath those? Say, what's going on in my heart? What, what do I want? Um, Timothy Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods and in it he kind of gave a, hey, here are four basic idols we run to. He breaks them down into these four categories. He says, we, we often pursue power. If power is your idol, it's, it's you saying my life only has meaning when I have power and influence. Your greatest nightmare is Humiliation. The people around you feel used by you. And your greatest problem is anger. Maybe a heart idol for you is comfort. Maybe it's not power, it might be comfort. And comfort would say this, my life only has meaning if I have this kind of pleasure or this quality of life. And your greatest nightmare is stress. People around you feel neglected. your greatest problem or your greatest fear is boredom. Comforts your idol. Or or maybe your idol is approval. And and it would say this, that my life only has meaning if if I'm loved or or respected by, and you fill in the blank. I I need this person's approval, their love, their respect. and, And your nightmare, your greatest nightmare is being rejected. And people feel smothered by you. Or people around you feel crushed as you put the weight of your soul on them. Or people around you feel let down as you seek to win everyone's approval and can't just stay in one place. Your greatest problem is that you're a coward. Or here's the fourth one he lays out. An idol of control. My life only has meaning if I can gain a mastery, a control, if I can hold on to and have this in my control. Your greatest nightmare, if if control is your idea, your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. People around you feel condemned because of the weight you put on them. Why can't you get this together? And your greatest problem is worry and anxiety. Now, as I quickly burned through those four things, I went fast through them, but as I quickly did, maybe this morning you're sitting there and and you hear some of those and you're like, oh, ouch. I mean, that's me. Listen, that's God's pursuit. That's God's wall of protection where where he brings in guilt and uses guilt to, to hedge around you to say, don't go after these, don't pursue these. I will pursue you with a disciplining love. Now he won't only just stop you from, from pursuing it. He, he, he may even get to a place where he says, I'm gonna remove this idol from you. Look at verse nine. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season. I'll take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. God's saying, listen, you put your hope in your job, I'm taking that away. You put your hope in your position, it's gone. Put your hope in this ideal family, gone. Put your hope in in financial security, gone. These things you use to cover your nakedness, I'm not going to let you use them anymore. And God in his loving pursuit will often kick the legs out from underneath our idols. Why? So we land, we crash, we finally look up and see this idol is not where I get my meaning and my hope and my joy. This is not what I should be worshiping. I should be worshiping God. And and maybe this is you this morning where you you find that the the Lord's come in and in his severe mercy, he's removing things. And he's removed power and influence or he's removed comfort or he's removed approval or possessions or peace or happiness. Listen, listen, that is God pursuing you quickly. Look at verse 10. Now uh, I will uncover her lewdness and the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. He says, listen, I'm going to expose your sin so you can't hide anymore. Verse 11, I'll put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her, all her appointed feasts. He's saying, I'm going to take away the joy you get as you celebrate your idolatry. Verse 12, and I'll lay waste her vines her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I'm taking away the things that these idols you think give you. So you see that it's my hand who brings them to you. The scary is verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went to her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. He's like, I'm going to punish. My, my favor is going to be removed. Now, now you might read through that and go, that's so harsh. Hear it from a place of a loving God. Hebrews 3 says this, verse 11 and 12. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. If, If we're worshiping one of these idols, listen, you're suppressing the truth of God. We're calling God's character into question, saying, God, you are not good. I need more than you promise. And we take the gifts he gives us, we worship those as gods until we're owned by the idol. I mean, if this is where you are today and and, and God is resisting you right now, God is removing your idolatry. Listen, God loves you too much to let you get your own way. And you might be in the midst of the storm of God's disciplining love and you're calling out, God, stop the storm. Well, like Gomer, you're in bed with another lover. God, stop the storm while you cling so tightly to the idol. He's bringing the storm to take out of your hands. And it feels like, I get it, it feels like it's killing you because it is. It's us laying down our lives, dying to what we put our hope into. And see that the love we seek, the hope we seek is found only in him. I you mean, know, have your idols got the better of you? And, and you can see that the Lord is sending a message by, by removing, by, by making these idols not so, so, so joy-giving any longer. Listen, turn back to the Lord today. He's loving you by making your life rough. Do the hard work of pressing into him. Don't resist his discipline today. Here's the thing, God doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Yeah, God loves us through a disciplining love, but also God loves us with a wooing love. God loves us with a wooing love. It's a relational language here. When when it's this, this wooing love of God, it's a romantic language. Now, when, he, when, when we now see God's wooing love displayed, not as disciplined love, but now as wooing love on display, what are we seeing? Get the picture of what's going on here. Remember who, who God's using as the example. He's saying to Hosea, woo her back, lure her back. It, it's a romantic word, entice her back to you. Remember the context. This is crazy love that God has on display. Picture Gomer years into prostitution. God saying, I'm going to woo you. I'm going to lure you. I'm going to speak words to you that are kind and tender. This is the God we serve. That he loves us when we're unlovable. That, that God makes the first move, even when we're still in unfaithfulness. I mean, what an awesome God we serve. This is the gospel on display here. This book is showing us the the love of God and the gospel. And, And I've said this before, that when we think of the gospel, we need to hold on to both truths of what the gospel says. This truth over here that says, I am sinful like Gomer. That's me. That's who I am. And then hold on to the other truth over here. I am loved by God. That's the gospel. Now you need to see this first part though. That's why we're talking about idols. That's that's why the story of Gomer hits us so hard. Why? Because to see our sin is to see who we really are. That we would say, that's me, I'm Gomer. I'm the one who rejects the love of God and pursues other lovers. And then when you see that God steps in to woo you, it should shake your soul. Verse 15 it says, there I will give her, vine- her her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. Now, what's the valley of Acor? What's this Acor Valley? The, the valley of Acor, if you remember back in the book of Joshua, what, what happened there? Remember this guy named Achan? They go in, they, they overtake the city of Jericho, and, the, and, and Achan steals some of the plunder for himself. He hides it under his tent. And then God steps in because God says, you're not supposed to do that. This is all my glory. You didn't win the battle. It's all my glory because you just walked around the city. You don't get to get the spoils. You get none of that to, to make it like it's your victory. Achan takes the glory for himself and God punishes him in the Valley of Achor. There's this, this punishment poured out on him and his family and his livestock. I mean, it's, it's, you have to read it. Just what, what the Valley of Achor would have meant this valley of trouble. And God says, listen, I'll even restore that. I'll turn your valley of trouble to a valley of hope. Listen, there's where our hope is. Yes, I am sinful, more sinful than I'd ever want to admit to anybody. My hope though is found in the fact that God says, I will turn that valley of trouble into a door of hope. He goes on, he says, and verse 15, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, goes, I'm bringing you back to that, that place where I rescued you and restored you. Verse 16 goes on, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by my, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. He's saying, listen, not only will I restore the Valley of Acor, I'm going to take the remnants of that idol, that, that, that sin of yours, I'm going to remove it so that even the memories begin to be removed. Think about what this means. That as God steps in, as you come to this place of repentance, that God can step in and that marriage where, where 10 years of difficult marriage because of sin and you begin to turn to the Lord in repentance and walk it out with him who you worship and, and you start to walk that out, those 10 years can begin to seem so short, so small. As you now live in the, the glory of God in his grace, that that addiction that seemed to grip you so tightly, that that brokenness that seemed to define who you were, that, that, that not only it will its historical hold on you be released, but even, even the power it has to define you, God says, I'm taking that away. Verse 18, he goes on, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish The bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm making this vow. I'm making this promise. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy. I will betroth to you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God says, I will promise. I will betroth. I will give the dowry. The relationship is restored. The promise that that was first given on that wedding day is being renewed. But listen, it's not because of Gomer. We bring nothing to the table. This is about God. God's the one who's going to bring hope into the equation. God's people, just like you and me, time and time again show that if this relies on my obedience, we're done for. My my redemption can't be based on my reliability. My, My faithfulness can't be dependent on me. Our only hope is for God to be God. And we're changed. Listen, we're changed when we begin to see clearly the God-centeredness of the hope of redemption, that it centers on God, that, that God's the one who allures his people. God's the one who makes the promises to his people. God's the one who restores his people. God's the one who makes a covenant with his people. God's the one whose glory is being displayed here. Why? Because we have nothing to bring. God owns the righteousness that we get to wear. God owns the justice. God owns the steadfast love. God owns the mercy and faithfulness. And he brings all of these to the table as his dowry price. And we bring nothing. We serve an amazing God. In the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. This should shake us to our soul when we think of what this represents, when we see our sin in light of what God's doing, he's wooing us. Here's our last point for this morning. God also pursues me with a redeeming love. God pursues you with a redeeming love. In fact, chapter three, it it begins the same way chapter one began. Chapter three says this, and the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So, so it starts like this, this whole thing started. It's now being laid out here, but there's something different here going on. Look at verse two. Hosea says this, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethich of barley. What's going on here? Homer goes to purchase Gomer. Hosea, sorry, goes to purchase Gomer. Now, we don't know why Hosea has to purchase her back. Maybe she sold herself into prostitution. She's now owned by a pimp. We don't know that. Maybe she's done so much damage in her life, she has no money left, and so she's buried in debt, and so she has to sell herself as a slave that way. But here she is. She's being auctioned off And Hosea, who already had paid a dowry at the wedding time for her, now goes to buy her back. It's what the word redeem means, to repurchase, to buy back what you already own but lost. And Hosea has 15 shekels, and then he he throws in these other weights of barley, which equals about nine bushels of barley, uh, another 15 shekels. So Homer here has 30 shekels. Historians tell us that the price for a slave at that time was 30 shekels. Homer's buying back, Hosea's buying back Gomer because she's a slave. Think about what this means as Hosea steps in here. Here we are on the auction block. Here's here's Gomer stripped naked on the auction block and and they're auctioning her off and Hosea steps forward and says, I'll I'll give seven shekels, nine, 10, 15 shekels and, and nine bushels of barley sold verse 3 and i said to her you must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will i also be to you he comes up he purchases her he covers up her nakedness he gives her back her dignity as his wife he lovingly leads her away from the auction site and she comes home i mean this this is incredible This is what God is saying I I do for my people Israel. This is what Jesus has done for you and me on the cross. Hosea gave everything. If he had the 30 shekels of cash, he would have just paid that. What it shows is he's like, I don't even have enough money. I'm just gonna give you all that I've got. He liquidates everything. Listen, Jesus Left heaven to become a man, to, to live the life that we should have lived. And then, and then what did he do? He gave everything to pay the price we should have paid and died our death. But listen, he didn't do all of that so that we could continue to pursue an idol. Listen what Hosea says after he buys her, verse 3 You need to dwell with me now. Be my wife. I'm your husband. Jesus didn't die for our sin and be raised again so that we could just keep going after idols. He did it so we could be set free to no longer play the whore, to to be in a real relationship with him. Listen, the the option is this. He purchased you from the auction and you stay a slave. You, You continue to run to your idols. You continue to protect. You continue to hide. You continue to defend. Listen, in, in the midst of God's loving you, pursuing you, in the midst of his discipline, as he removes the idols, what do you do? do? Do you run? Do you say, well, if I can't have this, I'm gonna go after this instead? Do you protect, hold on even tighter, crush the idol even more as it rots you from the inside out? Do, do you get defensive? Where God in his loving discipline sends people into your life to say, hey, hey what's going on isn't good. I mean, you need to pull away from this. And what do you do? Do you say, hey, don't judge me. I'm gonna go find a group of people who will just love me for who I am. That's code for, I want my idol, leave it alone. Listen, in your idolatry, you are dethroning God. It is cosmic treason. You are lowering God to the lowest place. While he's here saying, I'm the one who gives you the wool and the bread and the wine. How how do we respond? As God says, I'm stepping in to purchase you. What do you do with this kind of love? The answer is this, repent, return to him. It's important to know what that means. What does repentance look like? There's a right repentance and a false repentance. Paul in 2 Corinthians Chapter seven, verse 10, he lays out, hey, there's a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Gomer says, ran to Hosea when she ran out of stuff, right? So it's better if I go back to my first husband. That's worldly repentance. I'm sorry I got caught. This idol isn't doing it for me anymore. Let me see if there's something else. That's worldly repentance. The difference is it doesn't take into account what you've done to God. It's it's the prostitute coming home saying, hey, thanks for the stuff, but never recognizing what they did to their spouse. Godly sorrow, it's where you see your sin and where you see who you've sinned against. Where you say, I'm Gomer. I'm the whore in the story. My sin has caused me to be enslaved and stripped bare. Where you, you say like the apostle Paul would say in Ephesians and Colossians where he gives the list, he says, here's who you were. You were drunks, you were addicts, you were sexual perverts, you were liars, you were cheats, you were thieves. And I'm like, hey, Kai, like seriously, we're, we're spending a lot of time in this part of the gospel. Like what about the, you're accepted and loved and changed and adopted and made new. Listen, if we don't spend time here, if we're not willing to own who we are, we're never going to be able to rejoice in what God's done for us. We have to come to the point where we say, It's me, I'm Gomer. My, my idol is an accusation against God, an unfair, undue, unfounded accusation against the creator of the universe. And and when you come to the place where you recognize that you're accusing God of not being good, you're accusing God of not being for you, you're accusing God of not blessing you. And while we accuse God, you won't give me this the whole time. You're enjoying the gifts he's given you. As we look deep into the depths of our heart and see our idols and we dig under the choices we make to see what's going on, what we're we're looking for, when we start to see the ugliness of our sin, here's what it does, it drives us upwards to the cross. When we see the warning in, in chapter two, verse three, where God says, I'm gonna strip you naked, lay you bare, cast you out, Eventually, it did happen to Israel. Assyria did come in and do all those things and destroyed Israel. As we read those verses, it should cause us to ask, man, why not me? My sin is the same as what's described here. Why aren't I stripped naked? Why aren't I cast out? Why aren't I the one who's left thirsty to die? And it's in that moment, you again look to see the cross where Jesus came as our substitute, as the the perfect lamb, where Jesus was stripped naked, where Jesus was cast out for you, where Jesus was brought to the auction block of the cross, dying, parched of thirst, crucified in our place, and then raised again from the dead so that we could have robes of righteousness so that we could have the living water of new life and the spirit of God in us, so we could be restored into a relationship with God. And then when you see the reality of what your redemption really means, that we've been bought back, that that he created us and owned us, but then we ran in our sin and ran away until we were lost and naked and enslaved on the auction block, bought back, redeemed, and we come to recognize that that's what's going on. Here's the other thing we recognize, that as the offender, we don't get to, to determine the terms of what the relationship looks like moving forward. We don't set the terms. God does. And he says, come home. Don't play the whore any longer. Jesus didn't buy us back so we become better prostitutes. He didn't buy us back to keep pursuing our idols, but the the love that the Lord, our God, poured out on us is to change our hearts so that we love him with all our hearts, all our strength, all our mind, all our life. And so this week when you... Face an idol where you're tempted to make that, that click on the mouse. You're tempted to say that thing. You're tempted to grab a hold of or do whatever it is that you're grabbing a hold of. What do we need to do? Take that idol, bring it to the auction block. Bring it to the cross and say, I was bought with a price, a very high price. And I've been saved to belong to him now. As the worship team comes up and and we respond even this morning. I mean, I'm talking about this week when sin is revealed, but what about this morning? As the Lord presses in on your heart today. And maybe you come here this morning not as a follower of Christ. You're like, I, I, I'm checking out church, I'm I'm kicking the tires, I, I'm not a person who would say that I'm a I'm a Christian. How do you respond to this? When when the Lord pursues you, you respond by saying, I'm Gomer, I need a redeemer. Maybe this morning you're here caught in idols and sin and and what the service has done is just reminded you of of how much you live in this part of the gospel and, and it's been more revealed to you and you start to see more clearly what you've been pursuing. You respond by remembering the price it took for you to be called righteous. And I would say this here's what I would call you to do call out that idol. Bring the idol to the cross. Not in general terms, name it. Name it this morning. Where you would say, Man, I worship approval, I worship power, I worship comfort. I worship control, name it, bring it to the cross and say, this is it. This is what I worship and then see the cross, see the price that was paid to buy you back from that sin. Bring that idol to the cross and I would say this, don't leave the cross too quickly. Maybe stay there with the idol for a time. Stay there for a while. To lay the idol down. To ask for forgiveness. To receive mercy at the cross. And here's another way we respond. When you do that, you can respond with rejoicing. When that happens, you, you begin to get to that place where you understand what has happened, that you were Gomer, bought with a price. You begin to celebrate grace in a new way. You begin to lift high the name of Jesus in a new way. You begin to see this, that as it says in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. So this morning, we're gonna sing, and, and listen. If, if you need to make a move this morning, if God's been pressing on your heart today, don't wait until this afternoon. Don't wait for lunch. Don't wait for this week, maybe even right now. You begin to do that work with the Lord. You begin to call out that idol this morning. We're gonna sing. I'm gonna get you to stand in a moment. People are gonna come forward right away deacons and and, and elders and small group leaders, people who who would love to pray with you. If you want somebody to pray with, grab them. Otherwise, maybe you just need to come up as as an act of humility and get on your knees before the Lord. There's nothing special about up here, but there's this this move we make with our body that does something in our soul. We say, "I'm, I'm gonna step past my pride this morning. I'm gonna say, here's my idol, Jesus. Forgive me. Take this. I'm coming home as your spouse. I'm coming home in relationship with you today. And that you'd make that move. And you'd come and get on your knees and spend time at the cross to say, God, I need this removed. Thank you for your grace. And you'd worship and rejoice. Bring glory to the God who redeemed you. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. When we consider who we are in our sin and then recognize the lengths at which you went to, when we see that our sin is a sin against a righteous, holy God, cosmic treason, and yet you stepped in and said, I'll woo you back. I'm not just wooing. You redeemed us. You paid the price. So Lord Jesus, we lift high your name as you gave everything to win us back. And we come back to you to to lay the idols down, to enter into the relationship that you have called us to, to see that our hope and our meaning and our identity is found in your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name.